The history of the world is a sequence of empires. They are born, they evolve, and then they die. Where do we go from here? Life after empire, empire. Life doesn't die. Hello and welcome to another episode of Life After Empire. Joining me as co-host of today's conversation is Kate Siegfried. Kate is a managing editor at the Life After Empire substack and a researcher whose work is focused on the role of culture in facilitating national liberation struggles during the Cold War. In this episode, you'll hear our conversation with Christopher T. Bonner, Assistant Professor of French and Francophone Studies in the Department of Global Languages and Cultures at Texas A&M University, and author of Cold War Negritude, Form and Alignment in French-Caribbean Literature, soon to be released by Oxford University Press. The book is already available for pre-order, find a link in the show notes, and we highly recommend that you put a purchase suggestion in with your local library. Purchase suggestions are a great way to access expensive academic books for free while supporting the authors and contributing to the intellectual life of your community. Sounds good. Okay, we are recording. Great. Uh, So welcome to the show, Chris. We're both really excited to talk to you. We're excited to talk to you for a couple of reasons. Within our After Empire project recently, we announced a series, and the announcement we titled The New and Old Cold War When Conflict is Collusion. And we started this series, one, because like there's a lot to learn from the Cold War historically, um, but also because there's been all this discussion around the emergence of like a quote unquote new Cold War, right? Whatever that might mean, we can get into that later. Um, but right, this is like a really important historical period for understanding geopolitics, culture, right? All these sorts of things that you're getting into. And so part of the reason I'm excited to talk to you is because I think your work gets at a lot of these questions in terms of giving us insight between culture and geopolitics, how or if the Cold War was actually grounded in a bipolar world order, how we can use historical study to understand what to do today, all these sorts of things, right? So like typically, in terms of like what we learn in history class, I think for a lot of us, you know, through high school, maybe even up through college, we're typically told that the Cold War has a beginning and an end, right? That it starts sometime around 1946, and then it ends when the Soviet Union officially collapses in 1991. Right. We're told that the conflict is, quote unquote, cold, because (laughs) according to popular narrative, neither the Soviet Union or the United States used their own military forces directly against the other. And we're also told, right, that during this time period, there were two really clear oppositional world powers or blocks, right? The Eastern Bloc, which kind of fell in line with the Soviet Union, and the Western Bloc, which was the United States, NATO and its allies. Sometimes we hear about the non-aligned movement. Sometimes. I don't think I learned about that until college. And so I'm really curious to to kind of give everyone a little bit of context. Like, can you talk about how you understand the Cold War period and how your understanding does or does not align with the sort of popular narrative that I think most, um, at least Americans, are familiar with? Uh, yeah, uh, sure, Kate. Thank you for the question. It's a big one. Um, and uh, it's kind of the first time I've been asked in a while to kind of think in really like the broadest terms, like what is the Cold War? Um, The most interesting thing about the Cold War for me is really the kind of ideological piece of it, like the clash of ideologies. It's where ideological divisions were like very clearly defined. Um, I think that the Cold War was not actually cold, number one. I would absolutely agree with you there. I mean, it cost millions and millions of lives from Vietnam to Indonesia to to Haiti, uh, to Cuba, to Algeria. Um, So that's one of the things that, you know, it it looks a lot different when you study, I think because I studied literature and I studied sort of post-colonial literature, my entry into the Cold War made me aware of how, just kind of how it looks from a different kind of global positionality, how it looks kind of from beneath and between. Um, And there's amazing, you know, there's amazing literature written about this. I mean, M.A. Césaire, who's like one of my big authors, right, in my book, um, writes this tragedy of whom the tragic hero is Patrice Lumumba, a season in the Congo. I really recommend that everyone kind of go and read that. And he, um, 
He talks about the Cold War for like the third world in sort of national leader, right? Leader of a national independence movement as specifically like a tragic position. You are, you are kind of trying to do like within your own kind of life world and your own kind of purview, a certain, you know, you're, you're pursuing, you know, your project of liberation. And yet anything you do, you're encountering and possibly provoking forces that are like from outside and that are like vastly superior in power to you, right? And possibly pissing them off. Um, so what, you know, there's kind of what you think you're doing right on the level of the national liberation struggle. And then there's kind of how your own actions get coded sort of by the kind of Cold War master code, right? Of the, like you're saying, the two camps. Um, so I think people who study literature for one, because of the disciplinary difference, right? You know, like if you're studying poli-sci, if you're studying history, you really are getting like, in poli-sci, you're getting like game theory, right? In history, you're getting like, you know, kind of broad narratives. Um, you know, in history, we're looking at kind of, you know, kind of individual, individual, you know, individual narratives, right? Sort of how, how things look kind of from a, almost like a phenomenological individual point of view. So this disciplinarily number one, and then, uh, and then just sort of geographically, uh, number two, that the Cold War meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. The other thing, just kind of talking in terms of genre, I'm a literary guy, so I think in terms of genre all the time, um, complicating the Cold War as, I mean, it's it's often presented to us, and I, and I get this from my students as well, like it's really often presented to us as a melodrama, like that there's this Manichaean struggle, right? There's, and, and that depending on either, you know, either way you hear of it, right? It's good or evil, you know, like our side is good, their side is evil, their side is good, our side is evil. You had Zhdanov say, right? There's a, what is it? There's a democratic anti-imperialist camp. And then the other side of the chiasmus, there's an anti-democratic imperialist camp, right? Just kind of perfect symmetry there. And as we know, right, if we study, I mean, God, even if we just study the United States and the Soviet Union, but really if we study the second world, the third world, right, different areas of the of the globe. I mean, it's the the the, the effects of the Cold War are uh, are far more multifarious. Com global communism looked way different to René de Pestre and to Jacques Stéphane Alexis, who was really trying to reform and kind of trying to trying to make sort of progressive changes in Haiti, than it did to the workers in East Berlin in 1953, for example. Right. That's broadly speaking how I how. I would think of kind of complicating the Cold War narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great answer. I really loved the the genre articulation of the Cold War as a melodrama. That's so accurate. <laughs> um, and then the other piece of it is thinking back to what you were saying in the first part of your answer in terms of thinking about what was going on as both um, beneath and between. I think like for me, one of the things that has captured my attention attention in terms of thinking about the Cold War is how it both seems like this period where like the question of what the world was going to be and what sort of world was possible was like really on the table um, and really being contested and engaged in this really direct way. While at the same time, there's also this narrative that's like, well, actually it's the Eastern Bloc or the Western Bloc and you have to pick one, right? And so identifying like what are the implications then for people struggling for national liberation? It gets like pretty complicated, right? Like what does freedom mean in that context? You know, um, which I think you're speaking to in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of like one more kind of big picture <laughs> context question. So, you know, you study the, the French speaking world. And so I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of context for what was going on during that time mm -hmm. um, in terms of, yeah, like either the French speaking world more broadly or the French Caribbean specifically. And also like, what is it, what does the Cold War as a sort of contextual framework reveal about what was happening in the French speaking world at that time? Because I think most of us don't even actually really think about the French when we think about the Cold War. And also like French imperialism, right, started long before the Cold War did. So there's all these sort of complicated things going on. And so I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of context. Yeah, that. sure, absolutely. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, like, again, you, you know, you're talking about the kind of, uh, kind of um, complicating the this the sort of simple narrative you you look at the cold you know the like there that cold war map that everyone has in their like high school history textbook it's like france is colored in right you know like with you know uh, i think it's generally blue right is the kind of for, right the kind of free world right and then the you know and then the rest you know big chunks of the world are colored red it was extremely complicated uh, uh political situation in france france obviously benefited from i mean it was part of nato 
Um, it benefited hugely from, uh, from Marshall Plan aid, billions and billions of dollars. Um, there were some strings attached uh, to, uh, to, uh, to Marshall aid. But there was also, I mean, you know, right after the liberation in France, I mean, you had the French Communist Party, which was at its most popular in its entire history. I mean, I was never even as popular after that as it was during the liberation. Why? Because of French Communist Party was the leading faction in the French resistance. And of course, you know, for propaganda reasons, they embellished, shall we say, our 10,000, uh, you know, murdered, et cetera. It wasn't quite 10,000, it was far less. But still, there was a lot of, there, there was sort of broad kind of credibility in the French Communist Party for, for different reasons, right? Combining like actual Marxist anti-imperialist reasons, but then also Cold War geopolitical reasons was very much against the American, uh, was very much against American imperialism, framed imperialism kind of worldwide as, as kind of a, a problem that the United States is kind of, um, is, is sort of at the center of. And then uh, also uh, opposing NATO, opposing NATO's presence in, um, in the United States, kind of seeing NATO as another imperialist occupation. Was that because it was convenient for, for Moscow to spread that kind of propaganda in the French population? Yes. Was it also because many communists in the French Communist Party opposed, say, America's devastation of Korea in the Korean War and, you know, and many other imperialist adventures? Yes. So there is kind of this, your question was about sort of... Um, what do what did people actually how did people actually want to change the world and what did people actually think sort of the right thing was or sort of right uh, versus what was a product of geopolitical influence right and an ideological influence exerted by one of the two poles and it gets all sort of jumbled together so that's in france and then in the french-speaking world of course the french-speaking world until 1960 really um was uh, was you know, pretty much coextensive with the French colonial empire, the second French colonial empire, the big wave of decolonization that happens at the, uh, in, in the, in the post-war world after India and Pakistan, et cetera, after the Indian subcontinent really is, you know, first North Africa um, uh, and then sub-Saharan Africa. And much of this area is, is French speaking. So you have, and this is again, like we, we talked about periodization, like, a lot of the a lot of the tendencies that kind of develop in the cold uh, it, during the cold war period started earlier like the like i was um, what i was thinking of just now was that french although you know the, the fact of speaking french the fact of being educated in france or um you know uh, the fact of paris being a hub of intellectual activity um for for the for sort of colonized intellectuals this kind of led to a lot of anti-colonial sentiment this allowed these anti-colonial intellectuals to kind of talk to each other and compare notes ho chi minh was a member of the french communist party usman somben was a you know he worked with communist dock workers in france this kind of intensifies it starts in the 30s and even earlier but it kind of intensifies uh during the cold war so so in the french caribbean kind of most specifically you have, um, there's kind of two parts of the French Caribbean. It's really the islands of Guadeloupe and Martinique that were incorporated into France that basically became French departments in 1946. And then there's also the nation of Haiti, which was an independent Black Republic for 200 years. And the French influence there is any more like mostly cultural, right? Um, it was kind of, you know, for, 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 for a long time, it's been much more directly influenced by the U.S., uh, than by France. But for intellectuals uh, during the Cold War, for both areas of the French Caribbean, what we call the French Antilles and then, and then Haiti, Paris, the metropole, was this meeting place, right? It was this meeting place where they uh, gained a political education, where they gained entry into the broader, I mean, they were all, the, the people that I'm studying were all communists, all somehow involved in the French Communist Party. And that put them in touch with a huge global network of, of intellectuals and statesmen, right? I mean, René de Pestre, the Haitian exile and, and intellectual, met Ho Chi Minh, met Mao Zedong, spent a while in Prague in the 50s, absolutely hated it. But also in Prague, met Georgie Amadou, right? I mean, so their trajectories really were defined by this kind of connect, it was a connection to the second world, to the Soviet bloc, but through France. 
right? So it's, a, so it's one way in which kind of the Cold War and decolonization kind of form like one, one kind of matrix in this, in this, in this mm -hmm. period. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I started reading this book last week called Insurgent Empire, and I'm blanking on the author, but the introduction of that book is so interesting because the author goes through and kind of uh, debunks like a lot of myths that people were told about colonialism at the time and that were told historically. And one of them is this idea that like the people back in Paris, for instance, didn't care about colonialism, mm. that like the, the colonized places in the metropole were like totally detached from one another. And I think this is so interesting, especially because it, you know, it totally ignores mechanisms like what you're talking about with the French Communist Party and the role that that plays with connecting people to <laughs> right to the Soviet Union and then how that kind of it doesn't like collapse the world, but like it, it, it changes, right? It changes how you're understanding transnational flows of like culture and politics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, changes your yeah changes your understanding of transnational flows. Absolutely, it's this general kind of it's just it it kind of it's like the, it it shapes the kind of pathways you know through which these international networks and I'm mostly interested in the progressive international networks right are uh, are. Are formed and absolutely, you know. There's been, you know, there's been a ton of work. I mean, you know, the, I I see, I see this kind of work on the Cold War. There's lots of interesting stuff being done right now in Complit, mostly in you know in Complit about the Cold War, really as this kind of supplement to, to kind of the post-colonial framework. It lights up a whole different kind of network um, of relations that escapes you if you just look at at the global south right and we absolutely should be looking at the global south but kind of restoring the really the second world right rather than just the first and the third or kind of in like intra third world like yeah again i almost think of it as kind of abandoned subway tunnels you know or like abandoned mm -hmm. like yeah right? for but we sure. just ignore right Totally. Yeah, I think this is a really good transition to thinking about culture more intentionally, because for me, like it's the study of culture is what enables this sort of approach to even mm -hmm. take shape, to, like really draw connections between like micro instances of cultural production, whether it's like writing a poem or giving a speech or doing whatever. Right. And then these like really large global scale transnational networks. And I think like there's still a lot of skepticism around that. I was at a conference recently presenting work and I was sort of, I, I was giving like a very normal presentation. I was talking about world systems theory and like taking the, the world system as the unit of mm -hmm. scale. And the response that I got from some audience members, like people were positive, but some of them were like, oh, ha ha, good luck studying the whole whole world. Like, how could one possibly do mm -hmm. that? And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, I feel like I can actually do it, not like easily, but there is an established methodology for using culture as this entry point for understanding politics. Um, and there's generally like a lot of skepticism around that. I don't know if you want to jump in on that, Tyler. Uh, the thing that I think of uh, connecting to to Chris's work on this topic is the attempt to create an international network of black writers. The um, the first black uh, writers congress. What is it? What is it called? It's the first. I think you're thinking about the first international congress of black writers and artists. I mean, we can call it the first congress for short. That's what I call it because it's right. Long, so but yeah, and so that seems like a great example of a point which is particular, which is trying to create a new international network. But it's a, a space where you can look at literature and uh, poetry and people coming together to create an internationalist kind of project you can mm -hmm. see this kind of thing happening on, mm -hmm. a, on a world scale that might be a good example kind of entry point into thinking about you know can you study these global questions through through culture in that way well i mean i think you know in, in a way you sort of have to in order to get the whole picture of what the well at least of what the figures who were present at the first congress were trying to were, were trying to do i mean almost none of them were just Kind of men of letter they were all men all the delegates of the congress although although women kind of behind the scenes uh, were did quite a you know quite a bit of organi organizational uh work and made other contributions but um none of them you know almost none of the delegates were sort of just kind of men of letters just poets right i mean leopold songo for example became the first president of senegal and he was uh, he was one of the one of the kind of three kind of founding fathers if you like although it's a masculinist framework framework of of, of negritude poetry Aimé césaire communist de uh, deputy from martinique and uh renowned poet de rené de pestre 
kind of sane deal with Haiti. He wasn't he was he was a political revolutionary, but he was uh, an exile. France Fanon was at the was at the was at the Congress talking about culture, right? Um, who else? Jacques Stephen Alexi, a, a Haitian novelist and also a revolutionary, got got killed trying to overthrow the Duvalier regime, talking about the novel, like how we should be writing novels in 1956. Um, so absolutely. So for none of these figures was were culture and politics somehow detached. You know, they 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 conceived of culture and politics as different kind of spheres of activity. Obviously, right? They didn't think in kind of like that in writing a novel you're actually going to cause some revolution to happen, right? But they thought of they, they thought of these two different spheres as as absolutely interrelated, right? Um, and just sort of different different levels of action and intervention, right? Um, and the interesting thing about the Congress, right? The first Congress is that a lot of the delegates really did not see eye to eye at all, right? They really like they were politically very, very. Uh, you know, there were lots of antagonisms. There was a there was a delegation of of like kind of African, like you might you might say sort sort of Catholics, right? Uh, sort of anti colonial, informed by a certain kind of um, a certain kind of like um, liberation theology or. Not, not quite liberation theology because it wasn't Marxist. It was this. There was this guy uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Uh, this um, kind of um, this kind of you would say I would say sort of an anti-colonial kind of uh, kind of theology, but not like Marxist liberation mm. theology. Not Marxist and pretty much anti-Marxist. And then there were communists, right? There were like just straight up communists, Jacksonetics. And then there were people kind of you know all over the place. There were Americans. There were like American black liberals as well who were at this Congress, right? Um, and so. Culture absolutely was this proxy battlefield, and and if you read the the, the proceedings of this, it's of, of this um, it's so dynamic and interesting just to read. It sounds like it's not like it wouldn't be, but it really is because you see the just these live debates, like Kate, like what you're saying. It's like the stakes of like how we should be writing poetry or how we should write novels is like so it, it's so elevated, right? It's and it is like it is it is very clear that they're talking about politics while they're talking about culture by talking about culture do you yeah. encounter skepticism um from from people about the importance of culture to politics because it does seem like there's a strain mm -hmm. of thought um mm -hmm. and it, I mean, it's not even confined to any particular political position it's almost a generalized point of view in our society that culture is about fun and entertainment and you know there's still this kind mm -hmm. of view that culture is ornamentation but ultimately a distraction from uh what is real and what matters and what makes a difference i mean you know it's it's not going to be surprising coming from a literature <laughs> professor that i i'm not fully in agreement with that you know with with that line of thinking i mean you know in the terms of like kind of kind of what you know what culture is i mean you can easily go down a rabbit hole with these questions because <laughs> culture is such a huge, it's, it's an abstract noun, right? I even argue in the book that at the first Congress, it was this kind of empty signifier, kind of almost like an essentially contested term, you know, that different people from different um, ideological positions kind of filled in, right? What is culture? How does it relate to economics and politics, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to depend on kind of where you, where you fall right on the spectrum. Um, you know, I'm in terms of like how I understand culture, I'm, pretty much convinced by the Marxist point, well, the Marxist point of view, by, I'm pretty much, you know, convinced by Marx, they, the, the base and superstructure model kind of works for me. And by that, I don't, I think there's, you know, sometimes like kind of a silly way to understand base and superstructure and that superstructure is just, I don't know, almost like fake or an illusion, or it's like the matrix or something. And it kind of dissolves, you know, and then, you know, the only thing that's real is economic, you know, but what's going on in the superstructure law uh, politics and you know the arts culture is obviously determined by economic relations culture culture is one of the thing you know human beings are makers we make things that's kind of what marx says uh, that's kind of what defines our species being and one of the kinds of things that we make are like poems and art and other you know and other kind of cultural products and so there's a mode of production of culture as well their institutions, their certain, their, their practices, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of generally how I think of culture. I mean, but like, is, um, is like writing a poem gonna, gonna cause a, you know, like a revolution to happen? You know, no, I mean, we should, we should be aware of, um, 
kind of the material, I don't know, just kind of, kind of the scale of things, like really like what we're actually doing. Political action is like joining a union, you know, canvassing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but poetry and literature and other artistic production absolutely can have political effects. So I'm, yeah. I'm interested in, in kind of pushing on that a little bit. Um, there are, when you get into some of the specifics, I mean, you talk about um, De Pestre being interested in this kind of national poetry for its contribution to resisting imperialist occupation. I, w- I want to draw that out. What is the role of poetry? If it, you know, we're, we're saying it's not, it's not just yeah. a reflection, right? Um, and it's something different than um, engaging in a union struggle or an insurrection. There are different modes of intervention within political struggle, but clearly these poets and novelists who are also statesmen, there's something about this poet statesman where there's a, a formulation of culture and ideas through this form, it, it can set direction and tone and it can call people into a collective process, right? I mean, what does that look like? And, and why did the authors that you were studying see it as an important point of intervention on this kind of decolonial question? How did they conceptualize its action upon society? So the... Authors that I study in Cold War Negritude, um, two of them are Haitian revolutionaries who are also authors. René de Pestre, who is a young poet who gets kind of, who gets linked up in Paris with Louis Aragon and the French Communist Party. Louis, uh, Louis Aragon, I should say. He's known as a surrealist author in like if anyone who studied, most people who study him in the, in the U.S. He was basically like a cultural commissar for the French Communist Party in the 50s, abandoned surrealism long before and really promoted like Soviet cultural policy. So de Pesla got kind of caught up with that. And then another author uh, who was also tr- kind of in that circle was was connected with Aragon and, and the French communist, kind of the cultural wing, you might almost say, the French Communist Party was Jacques-Stéphane Alexis. And Aragon was this kind of patron for both of them. Aimé Césaire, right, was a poet and left the French Communist Party in 1956 because for a number of different reasons, basically on on anti-Stalinist grounds, saw the relationship between literature um, and politics in a very in a, in a very different way. But all of them were political actors who were also very much engaged with uh, with the literary and cultural sphere and saw their political interventions, the kind of vision of what kind of world that, that they want to see as very much entwined and entangled with their aesthetic vision. So yeah, we can kind of put, we can kind of go uh, anywhere you like with that. If you'd like me to talk more about sort of their individual aesthetic visions, or if you'd like me to talk more about uh, maybe how, how they kind of saw, saw uh, literature and politics interacting. I think maybe a jumping off point um, for uh, De Pesta's poetry is he he sees the impetus to write along the lines of uh, Mayakovsky's uh, idea of the social command, right? The presence of a problem in society, the solution of which is only conceive uh, only conceivable in poetical terms. That's an interesting kind of view of uh, what it is to intervene in this space it clearly links society politics and poetics in this Mm -hmm. in a very tight way uh, without abandoning a kind of materialist approach so you know what's going on there Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so de pestre and so this is i should say that this is like a particular period in de pestre's kind of kind of you know um trajectory right he he started as a surrealist um, and actually, Haiti is one is an interesting example of where poetry and politics encounter one another. Um, the, there was a revolution in Haiti in 1946, and the leaders of that revolution, including René de Pesto, called themselves the Surrealists. Why? Because they were inspired, not entirely due to this, but they were inspired by André Breton, who was a leader of the Surrealists, who was in exile during World War II in Haiti and gave a lot of speeches and in, and sort of this, he gave a speech called Surrealism and Freedom, and this sort of was, these kinds of ideas were, were taken up by Haitian radical students, and they successfully overthrew uh, the government. So um, 
it, it didn't work. I mean, there was, you know, this kind of 10 years later, you had Duvalier, the worst fascism you can imagine. But so De Pesto kind of coming up through that event always thinks of the two as interlinked, like aesthetics and politics as, as, complete, as, as really interlinked. He gets involved with the French Communist Party in the 50s and his kind of writings about national poetry, I'll take like a second to explain what national poetry is. It was kind of a crazy thing that Louis Aragon came up with. He um, sort of thought that we need to go back to a kind of poetry that average people can understand and like even write. So we're gonna, instead of doing all this kind of avant-garde stuff that no one can understand, um, that is kind of bourgeois individualism, kind of masturbatory, we're gonna go back to the sonnet, the French sonnet, nothing wrong with it. It was great. It was kind of this collective form, right? This national form. And hey, it's regular Alexandrian meter, 12 syllables, you know, six and six. Um, you know, a lot of different people, you know, you don't need to be sort of, you know, some mad visionary to write in it. So we're going to write sonnets. Aragon had a huge amount of cultural influence and De Pesto was kind of trying to figure out what to do with this, right? Uh, he, he, you know, he abandons it because he gets a lot of pushback from other Francophone Black poets, like around the circle of Présence Africaine. Uh, they're like, why are you writing? Like, why are you writing? This is insane, right? Like, why are you doing this? But once uh, there are a couple things that he liked about it, not necessarily about the sonnet form as kind of this reified thing. Oh, in and of itself, it's like this progressive thing. But he liked, um, one, the idea that, hey, I'm a Haitian, I speak French, like this form is mine too. I can appropriate this form and this form has, I think, Kate, you talk about affordances of different Cold War rhetorics. I mean, this form has certain affordances, right? Then maybe I, trying to come up with a po like a, a like a vision for like an art poétique for like a regenerated Haiti can maybe use. So trying to reclaim the form like for, for Haiti and for Haitians, like for Haitian, like, hey, we can write this way too. There's nothing inauthentic somehow about us taking on these high forms. This connects, I think, on a, on a theme um, in, uh, in Minerai Noir. Um, yeah. You describe De Pesto's writing as unapologetically equalitarian works that seek to reach and politically educate a mass audience. Yeah. Uh, works that address the vast majority as a collectivity united by common interests. They stress furthermore what Alim Badu names the communist hypothesis, the axiomatic declaration that there is only one world, a single world of human subjects between whom an infinite set of differences exist and wherein all human subjects therefore exist exactly as I do. And you yeah. say that his poem inscribes itself in this fighting tradition of solidaristic socialist aesthetics. And I think that is a very interesting point to draw out of the relationship between poetic form and political line. This assertion that there is only one world seems very much tied to his interest and willingness to reappropriate mm -hmm. and feel like he has belonging in, in some kind of relation to traditional French forms. Yeah, and to the end to, to Aragon as a figure, right? Because Aragon is, I mean, it was one of the leading resistance poets during World War II. He was a bona fide anti-fascist and anti-imperialist, right? Uh, uh, Louis Aragon along with Paul Éluard, like they're known as the resistance poets in French literature. And de Pesto is absolutely interested. It's not really so much, oh, I need to write in this specific form because there's some magic about this specific form. Uh, like if I, if I do keep chanting in 12 syllables, something magic will happen. It's about the connection with Aragon, the connection with a broader movement. Um, that's reflected in his, in his poetry. I mean, he has this whole, he has this poem called uh, Liberty Recounts uh, Her Life, Tells the Tale of Her Life. And it's like, Look, I should also I should also just kind of qualify all this, but I don't think that these are particularly successful poems, like aesthetically, right? I think like but it's it's <laughs> like it's something that he's trying to think through. Um, he's got this whole and it's in this in this voice of liberty, like the kind of spirit of liberty. And she at the end of this poem, she she liberty and this you know he's doing the voice of liberty enumerates all of these sort of oppressed people, people facing different kinds of oppression and exploitation in various contexts. Um, um, women who are being beaten, um, abandoned children, black people who are being lynched, workers who are being who are, who are being slapped in the face by their bosses, et cetera, et cetera. And he takes this Alexandrian form, which I'm telling you, it's 12 syllables, and you're supposed to kind of break them in half, six and six. 
he gives each of those people six syllables, six syllables, six syllables. They each get to share. They're each kind of literally physically placed next to each other and grouped together, right? They each kind of get the same space. And there's this, I, I'm trying to connect what DePest is trying to think through to like kind of a, a political imaginary like Brecht in the Workers United Front song. Comrade, there's a place for you. Come and join the Workers United Front because you are a worker too. You too have political belonging here. Um, so that's that is that's something that something interesting that DePesco did that was kind of more interesting than what Aragon himself was doing. That seems even and can't quite recall if you bring these up in different places, but you you bring up in the book this relationship to different forms of belonging. One of them being comradeship and the form of comradeship, and you draw on Jody Dean's work for this and thinking about the way that comradeship for Dean is a generic form is interesting in relationship to this six, 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 six. You've got very particular instances of oppression, but they are situated in a global and generic kind of space, which links them all and reaffirms again, there's only one world. An injury to one is an injury to all. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I use Dean's concept. She, I think, she does something really interesting with theorizing the comrade form. This this thing that really most of us grew up just kind of like hearing as a joke, like oh, okay, comrade, right? Like trying to reclaim something politically useful in that form. And I think that there is. It's like genericity, like or genericness, and then it's also mm-hmm. um, the idea that it cancels out previously existing relations and it promises new relations. It promises like okay. Whatever relations you've had before, we're all in this together and we're going to produce and we're going to produce new relations, right? That are kind of start out from a basis of equality, right? The third thing is that the comrade is not about individual subjectivity. It's not about me. It's about, it's an us, right? It's a, it's, it's relational. And she goes back to the etymology, like refers to like a structure, you know, sort of, sort of rooted in equality. And it's not that there are no differences. It's more um, emphasizing like everyone has a place. And I think Edupesta was very interested in that. And th- there were specific reasons why he was interested in that. Edupesta was fighting. I mean, what was happening in Haiti at this time was the emergence of a pretty nefarious right-wing racialist ideology called noirisme, which grew out of cultural nationalism. There was this movement called the Griot right uh, it's it's a it's a term for you know kind of a west african um sort of um, um storyteller wise man yeah right exactly right um and it's not it wasn't the movement itself wasn't you know in, inherently fascist but it went in a bad direction i mean it, it winds up with duvalier duvalier um kind of basing his own kind of cult of personality and his distribution of political favors and also his but basically his whole kind of ruling ideology in this essentialized notion of blackness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and de Pestre is absolutely 100% opposed to that. So when people are talking in terms of what he sees as, as kind of reified racialist terms, he, you know, he reaches for his revolver, so to speak, right? Not literally, but, you know, like in the, he, he, he's, he's completely allergic to it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I, I think that, so there are these different and competing and uh, uh, forms of belonging, which are being articulated in, in different yes. spheres of political action. And mm-hmm. there's thin uh, Black movements, mm-hmm. cultural nationalist movements, um, national liberation movements, mm-hmm. and decolonial movements. There are articulations of Blackness which do not rely upon the same forms of cultural essentialism. And uh, negritude is a more encompassing kind of form which is articulated in relationship to Marxist projects sometimes not always yeah. uh, in the way that so each of the three thinkers that you engage with in your book maintain some kind of affinity for this concept of negritude or, or blackness mm-hmm. uh, without kind of relation to it yeah mm-hmm. right without falling into a cultural essentialist position but also mm-hmm. recognizing that there was uh, at least seemingly something absent within their existing experiences of Marxist and communist politics at the time, which needed to be supplemented in some way, or that there was something 
something here, some form of belonging, which needed to be brought into this struggle. And I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah. Did they, did they manage that tension in different ways? Mm-hmm. Um, more or less productively? Is there a vision of it that you thought makes more sense mm. uh, at the end of the day or? Yeah. The two Haitian writers that I, that I look at, um, Jacques Stephen Alexis and René de Pestre, are both very critical of the discourse of negritude. Alexis, hmm, he doesn't really use the term that much, but he's extremely critical of, of forms of political belonging that are exclusively racial or, or that are based on an understanding of race that is essentialist, right? Let's, let's put it mm-hmm. that way. Um, Césaire as well. But, but so the interesting thing with Césaire is Césaire is really the one who coined the term negritude. He coins it in a very different political situation, which is the political situation of the 1930s. He's a student in the 1930s at the École Normale Supérieure. He likes to come up with neologisms, and one of them is negritude, right? Um, my negritude is neither tower nor cathedral. It plunges into the red depths of the earth. I, some, that last line might be a little bit different, but essentially, right? So he sees negritude not as some kind of... Um, I don't know, some kind of set of essential characteristics, right, that 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 people who people with a black identity have. He sees it really as like a, a really in existentialist terms almost as like a being, right? This that this is this is kind of my positionality and you know my my own process of like subjectivation and self-creation. And I need to try to like, you know, look downward and inward. I need to look back at history. I need to look at, I need to look at kind of my surroundings. I need to look at a number of things to, to kind of think this through, to kind of work through this problematic of blackness. So was it Césaire in particular who articulated anti-racist racism as a Mm. form of dealing with white supremacy um, through uh, uh, blackness as a, as a mediation, as a point of, Mm struggle and and trying to understand that it, it seems like uh, in, they're inheriting some mm. kinds of uh, Hegelian dialectical forms and trying well, to think through is Hegelian like intensely Hegelian yeah absolutely I mean Césaire's cohort a lot of people in Césaire's cohort were really formed in this kind of Hegelian philosophy like Alexandre Kojev right this is kind of what they were drinking in right at the in in Paris like in the 30s right in the 40s so, um, so yeah, absolutely. Your question was about um, anti-racist racism. Anti-racist racism. So that's not a term that Césaire uses. There's a term that's a term that Jean-Paul Sartre, writing about negritude, trying to theorize negritude and connect it to existentialism, uses. Right. And mm-hmm. very much, abs- you know, and so in, in Sartre's view, and Sartre get, got a lot of pushback from this, but then Césaire kind of said he agreed with him um, that. You, this is a step that's because because people who have been ascribed right the the identity of black right who've been racialized as black face this particular set of oppressions right they're interpolated not yeah some as workers in some part as well but also as black right they need to go through this dialectical process right right so, so to, to sort of undo the racism they need to start you know there needs to be kind of the negation of white racism then the determinate negation hopefully of something else hopefully eventually getting out of racialized thinking altogether. Sartre says that the ultimate goal is, you know, a, a society without races, right? Or a, a society that's moved past racial ideology. Um, that's a hugely contentious, right? As you can imagine, like a hugely contentious thing um, um, in, uh, in just in studies of negritude. And at the time, it was a hugely contentious thing. It was, however, something that de Pestre, as a Marxist, was interested in. So de Pestre himself was thinking, actually, yeah, you know what? Like, you can't just sort of stop thinking in racialized terms, like by sw- by by flipping a switch. Like, there's a process of self-creation, of disalienation, uh, right? That you have to that you have to go through. This is there's a process of dialectic that you have to go through. And so, de Pestre's connection to negritude was like, all right, if if we have to do the negritude thing, that's how I'm going to think about it. In the United States, questions of race and racism are right at the heart of politics right now. And historically, I mean, the most revolutionary moments in American history are connected with um, the overcoming of uh, the overthrow of slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And still we see like the biggest uh, social movements and uprisings that are happening in the country are connected to questions of race and racism. And people are still struggling to grasp the relationship between uh, universal struggles and what are cast as particular struggles in this, in this relationship and trying to say, well, is that even the correct framing of, you know, the, the black struggle is a particular struggle or is it not? And how do we understand and move through that as part of a process, which involves us all Mm -hmm. a line that we've put forward uh, at after empire in our declaration is uh, liberation is not an excavation. It's a new becoming. This is something which we've taken as uh, uh, an important thing to affirm Uh, we are creating a new so much like you said with the with the comrade the the vision of the comrade is we are stepping into this together it's something that will be forged and composed um, through struggle and phenonian as well right like the like algeria is us we're the ones in the struggle we're the one who are you know like the national culture is what's going to be the result of the struggle yeah so in the intro to your book uh, you wrote, if anti-colonial Antillian intellectuals active in the interwar period and during the Second World War contested the alienated racialized subjectivity imposed upon them by European colonialism and white supremacy through poetic catabasis, the global wave of decolonization called writers outward towards the world, the entire world rather than inward. And I think that this is a really interesting uh, juxtaposition of uh, uh, so if I'm not mistaken, Ketabasis is like um, bringing back to life, like a kind of calling up the the dead. It, it, well, yeah, it's like going, to, it's like Orpheus descending into the underworld, right? And he, you know, he wanted to bring back, you know, his his girl, his his beloved. So it's right? like, but yeah, drawing on going, authentic yeah. past um, national heritage, drawing on um, internal ideas of what the self is as an individual subject versus looking outward um creation the new this is like an important uh, dynamic that people are dealing with as they try to manage how they've been socialized as mm-hmm. a particular uh, form of individual as someone who is socialized mm-hmm. as black socialized as a woman so, etc et mm-hmm. right and what that means and how it has to be processed artistically and politically. I mean, do you sure. see that reflected in, in in some of the literary creations? Like, is there an inward form of poetry and and literature in the novel versus an outward form? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, I, and I'm and I'm I'm speaking like really schematically, but I'm talking about general tendencies, right? That uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the 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 sort of what counted as the, the emancipatory work that poetry should be doing or that literature should be doing, kind of more or less the predominant kind of understanding of that in the 30s and really up to the 40s, right? From Songo to Sartre, like, you know, from, from a, a lot of different, not a consensus, but a lot of different people who thought a lot about this agreed that like, well, for Black poets who have, who have, been, uh, who have been ascribed, the, you know, the racialized identity of Black, this is the kind of emancipatory work. It's reclaiming and disalienating subjectivity. And that requires the turning inward that many people associated with, with, you know, with lyrical poetry. The surrealists kind of documenting their dreams, if you kind of think of that kind of connection. Kind of going inward and I mean, you know, what does Breton say? Like, he's sweet, like, who am I? Right? That's like the first line of, of, of Breton's Nadja, right? Not a, not, what, not, a, not a poem, actually, a novel, but that's a different thing. But um, and then I'm, I'm sort of arguing broadly that when you get to the 50s and you have, as, uh, as Kate, you were saying, like the whole world shifting, like tectonic shifts, like 1956 alone, you have the Suez Canal crisis, you have Budapest, you have the beginning of the Cuban revolution, you have the Algerian revolution, you have the secret speech. The secret speech, my God, you have manifold, you have the entire world changing, shifting before your eyes. The, among the poets that I'm studying, there was a big kind of call outward, right? There was a call to, there was, it was, it was the, the kind of emancipatory act of literature, right? Of, of, you know, the kind of political interventions that it was understood that poets and other, you know, sort of intellectuals, creative people were called upon to make changed, right? That's kind of a big, like a kind of a big claim, claim from my book, yeah. 
Is it the Cold War before that? Yeah, that's super interesting. Part of what I've been sitting here thinking about is um, the importance of form and poetry, because like for, for me, I'm actually pretty deeply unfamiliar with poetry and the culture that sort of surrounds it. The cultures that I study tend to be like, quote unquote, public culture. So like radio, concert performances, media, like those sorts of things that have a sort of participatory element kind of built into the form itself, which I hadn't really like thought super consciously about. And so I guess I'm wondering, like, when it comes to poetry, like how were people sort of participating in that culture or what are the limitations of poetry for speaking to this moment of turning outward? Yeah, so I mean, it's hard because you don't want to like, you don't want to like hypothesize poetry, like poetry like is is this right, right in all contexts and all like, you know, situations, right? You know, like they're like, poetry can do a lot of things like, you know, I mean, right. I mean, it can, it can produce slogans, right. That we repeat. It can be the kind of, you know, it can be kind of like the song of the movement, right. It can also produce symbols that capture a certain set of contradictions or struggles. We can do a lot of things, right. We can, be, we can go on forever about what poetry can or can't do. Right. But I think one of, one of the interesting things that kind of, one of the interesting sort of tensions in thinking about what poetry could, couldn't do uh, specifically in the period that I look at, is like like the figure of the poet itself, right? Him, I mean himself. Like I think, unfortunately, the three authors here I'm looking at probably gendered the figure of the poet that way. Um, there aren't just these two ways of thinking about the poet, but these were kind of you know big kind of predominant ways of thinking about the, uh, the poet, and especially in the context of negritude. Um, the first one is the poet as, as vates or prophet, as the kind of kind of prophet who, you know, who who kind of leads his people, right? Sort of for, forms the, what, what does uh, Hambo say? Like the, the, the words of the tribe. And uh, in, in this kind of incantatory, very, very kind of inflated way. Um, uh, someone's going to want to verify this, but I think Vates is also connected to like, like being a shepherd. Mm -hmm. And the, another way of thinking about it, right, is precisely, uh, Tyler, what you brought up, like the social command. No, I'm like the poet isn't the one like, hey, figuring out like, you know, like, I don't know, kind of finding the way out of the desert or something. Right. And de Pesca says this in one of his Communist Party era poems. He says, let me be the handyman of the peace of the world. L'homme a tout faire. Right. Which is a very different figure from the from the prophet. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a worker. I'm, I'll contribute to the I'll contribute to the cause. Right. But I'm not going to inflate my importance here. Right. And I think. You know, again, De Pesto especially, well, and also Alexi, like seeing the connection in Haiti between this kind of cultural nationalist movement leading into the to the real kind of brutality of the, of, of the Duvalier government uh, regime was pretty suspicious of poet as Vates, you know, poet as poet as prophet. Um, so that's that's kind of one way in which kind of one frame in, in which we can think about like like the roles of poets in political movements, etc. You're trying to recover this not simply for the purposes of history and, and documenting it because you think it's of, of value. And um, in my research, I looked a lot at um, people who were involved in the proletarian culture movement, uh, and they were having these very lively debates over how to inherit the past and what our job is is culturally and educationally. Um, there were those who argued that their job was to uh, take all of the fruits of high culture and make them available to the masses of the workers and the peasantry, and that this was democratization, the making accessible, the dissemination, the redistribution. Ask then there were those- prints of the hundreds of thousands of copies of Don Quixote, right? And starts, yeah, that kind of thing, yeah. Exactly. And then there were those who said, we must rework the the past. Mm -hmm. We need to take it. We need to construct a, a new point of view, a new collective point of view, and to grasp it and say, uh, we can identify what is good about this and what is an important model in it. We can identify what is bad and we intend to leave behind from our own point of view mm -hmm. and, and to transform that. Uh, and then there were those who said we should uh, smash the past um, and be rid of it, and we should start from a blank slate. And those were kind of the, you know, the the poles of this 
argument. And I'm curious about your approach. I mean, clearly you're not saying we should smash the past because you're, oh, no, that's... you are recovering it. Yeah. Um, but how do you, how do you think about this? Um, yeah. Like how we use um, the past, how we engage history now, what, what it means for us. It's a great question, and it's definitely a question the authors who the, the authors in my uh, my in, in in my book are really trying to think through, and they're really kind of you know sometimes they're they're fighting it out. I mean, like so this so this kind of beef between René de Pestre and Aimé Césaire that gets I mean it, it spans a number of you know issues of présence africaine, etc. Um, in Césaire's poem, he's kind of a smash the past kind of guy if if the referent of the past is basically like connection to you know like the like you know the colonizer right and he's mm-hmm. got this really famous line well famous in certain circles he's got this really famous line uh, so like he turns the word maroon like a like a maroon slave like the maroon communities into a verb like let's leave them behind go and create our own community like we don't let's just leave it all behind and de pestre responds well it kind of depends on what we're you know marooning like marone right that can't really use it as a verb with like a, a, tra- a transitive verb in english it's hard to but it depends on what we're leaving behind and de Pesta, instead of kind of the marronage view thinks in terms of well what you want well he says faire le tri which is literally that's connected to the word triage a sorting he's like look at african american writers in the u.s they can pick and choose, like, let's look at the American, you know, let's, let's just say Western, let's just stipulate Western literary tradition. Um, yeah, there's some stuff we want to keep. We want to keep Shakespeare. We want to keep um, Howard Fast, who's the writer of Spartacus, who was like really popular among communists, like in the world in the 50s. Um, we want to keep a bunch, you know, Langston Hughes, keep him. And then he's like, well, you know, Ezra Pound, he was a fascist and get rid of him. So kind of almost like sorting through a trash heap or something, right? Just kind of seeing like, all right, what's oh, like, oh, well, you know, dust it off, kind of polish it a little, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe useful. It's a little bit how I'm kind of trying to approach like this particular of French Caribbean authors, like engagement with, with really existing communism, right? And really existing communist thought as a as a kind of triage, like, you know, like kind of like a little sorting. We don't need to accept like all of the, you know, whatever, like all of the horrors, obviously we don't even need to talk about, right, right, of, of, of the Soviet Union. To, to see value in, for example, the comrade relation, what the comrade relation offered, right, to, to René de Pestre and how that helps him think through his situation and how maybe a similar kind of trans individuality, right, might be helpful uh, for us thinking today. So yeah, I would say that us kind of sorting through, see, seeing what, what we can use, not even what, not like what, what can this teach us, but like what is, what's useful? I'm thinking about this point of view now in relationship to the question of partisanship. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sorting implies a distinctive point of view, a, a basis upon which one sorts. And a communist party did a lot of sorting, right? Stalin did a lot of sorting. Yeah, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, sorting as, as you're uh, gesturing towards always involves exclusion. Um, so I'm curious how you think about this in a situation of comradeship, which implies being on the same side. There is an other side to fight, to affirm that we are engaged mm-hmm. in, a, in a political struggle implies the existence of an enemy. And that makes mm-hmm. the practice of defining an enemy extremely important, something that must be taken extremely seriously if we aren't to just say, you know, everyone's included and, and, and that's the end of the story. Um, Anyone but not everyone can be a comrade. I think Jody Dean says that. I think that's maybe like a title. Anyone but not everyone. And yeah. And so mm-hmm. recognizing that there is a certain duty to partisanship, how does that inform the way that uh, we should conduct scholarship? We have, we have a duty to partisanship mm. and not a low kind of... If we're honest, we have to be true to that side. This is very bad. You, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, we construct a fidelity. Mm. I guess I'm putting, I'm putting that forward as a as an idea that we have a duty to, to some kind of high partisanship. 
right? Which is not a, not any kind of simplistic sorting, but in the way that that some of the authors that you look at tried to draw mm -hmm. on the even the best elements of the Marxist tradition and say, how does this apply here and now and take seriously based on the on the living realities of the people that they were writing about and engaging with and struggling with in a very thoughtful way. And, and do you agree? Or do you think that partisanship always ends up in some kind of degeneration? Oof. Uh, that's a, it's a great question, Tyler. And I'm not sure I have an adequate response to that. I mean, I'm kind of inclined to I'm, I'm a little bit of a Baduian about this in terms of just kind of, you know, the, 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 the kind of sort of fidelity to a, to a truth or to a project, right? If you, ex if you accept the communist hypothesis, right, to be true mm -hmm. broadly, right? It doesn't dictate necessarily one course of action, but, you know, it, 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 there's, a, there's a kind of a more general imperative, right, um, to, to, to sort of always act in such a way that you are true, right, to that, um, uh, to, to that well, to that truth. That, you know, is like pretty convincing to me. Um, I think that you were saying, uh, you were saying, so like, so is that like, just like, does that lead to, does that lead to just like error and even like horror, right? Is that the, right? I mean, you know, but you know, but you talks about, uh, talks about, um, I think he, he writes about evil, right? I think it's in ethics, uh, in Badiou's ethics, right? He's, um, there's, um, Oh my goodness! Now I'm putting myself <laughs> on the spot. Uh, uh, by saying, but there's the you know there's the there's the sort of there's the sort of you know possible errors right on the path of like fidelity to a truth right. There's betrayal, right, um, which he kind of as ascribes to like the sort of you know the the ex Trotskyist like kind of people who are like kind of right wing. Yeah, know, Christopher um, Hitchens sort of. Well, yeah, Christopher Hitchens, and then like the French, like the even more louche, like French versions of Christopher Hitchens, like Be like Bernard Henri Lévy, uh, for example. Right, yeah. You know, the philosophes like of the seventies. There's, um, I don't think he would, I don't think he called it terror. I'm blanking on the name that he called it, but then there's basically like the Stalinist error, mm -hmm. right? Like sort of going so far in the fidelity to it, like an abstract truth that you kill like what's living, mm -hmm. right? Um, so those are kind of like you know your your you know your your signposts, yeah. But, um but yeah we, um, we, we might add the uh the, the dengist error <laughs> of uh reincorporating too many within the party and uh losing yeah. all hold on the truth yeah but um but you know what i mean talking about you and the cold war i mean one of the you know what does he say he says we live in an atonal world now right it's like there are no there are no sides right or like you know like mm. or, or it's or it's much harder to you know to easily place yourself on a side yeah there's no i mean you know this is it, well this isn't totally due to the cold, cold war coincides with the cold war right there's no like real organized left in the united states mm -hmm. right to speak of there are groups and lots of leftists etc but there's not you know, no, no real kind of big movement with with actual power that can affect broad political change so what does it mean to be on a side that kind of that that is not right to put it in kind of a way that a french a, Fr a french chef it right um that's a ch i think it's a challenge today and i have no answer for that well i think that is a great place uh to leave it because it's something that we all need to ponder what is to be done Thanks again for joining us for today's episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. We didn't talk a lot today about contemporary events. We were looking at history, but as we all know, there are ongoing struggles for national liberation. And I want to leave you today with the words of a poet who understood his poetry, his work, as a contribution to the struggle for Palestinian national liberation. Rafat Al-Arir, who was recently killed in an Israeli airstrike. This is a poem, it's his last poem, read beautifully by uh, the actor Brian Cox. 
If I Must Die by Rifat Alaria, November the 1st, 2023. If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings. Make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, seize the kite, my kite you made, flying up above, and thinks for a moment an angel is there, bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope. Let it be a tale.